Good evening, Sleepless. I'm Jesse Cornett. And I'm Jeff Clement. And we're proud to present our production of Suddenly Shocking, Volume 11. Now, for your spine-tingling listening pleasure, we deliver 19 terrifying, shocking tales to make the shadows draw in and turn your nights sleepless. So lock the doors, close the curtains, and whatever you do, check under the bed. Because these tales strike without warning. And now, if you're quite, quite sure you're safe, let's begin Suddenly Shocking. And One For Me by S.H. Cooper. There's always such a rush after watching a live performance. The excitement of seeing some of your favorite strangers in the flesh, making instant friends with fellow fans, being loudly and unapologetically caught up in each and every moment in front of that stage. I was still floating on a post-show high after I'd finally said my goodbyes to everyone in the venue. Instead of calling an Uber, I decided I'd just walk back to my hotel. It was only a few blocks away, and I loved cities best after midnight, when they quieted to a dull hum of empty sidewalks and flickering street lamps. I tucked my hands into my jacket pockets and hugged it close to ward off the autumn chill as I began to walk briskly away from the marquee lights. The murmur of the lingering crowd faded as I turned the corner, and soon my only company was the sound of my sneakers scuffing off the pavement. Most of the brownstone windows had gone dark by the time I passed, but some remained lit, casting a warm glow downward. It seemed a peaceful, fitting end to my night. I paused at an intersection, checking both ways as I prepared to cross. Ho diddly dum, ho diddly dee, a step for you and one for me. The voice came from over my shoulder, so close it sounded like the granny speaker was pressed right up against my back. I jumped, whipping halfway around to face the owner of the croaky monotone words. But there was no wizened old woman standing behind me, only empty sidewalk and the warm glow of curtained windows. Ignoring the red hand warning me against using the crosswalk, I tucked myself further into my jacket and jogged to the other side of the street. I mean, it was reasonable to believe I'd probably just heard someone talking in their apartment or a TV playing, but I wasn't going to hang around to try and figure it out. From back across the intersection, I heard it again. It was the same old woman in the same flat tone, but I'd managed to put some distance between us. Looking back, she still wasn't anywhere to be seen, which bolstered the theory that she was in one of the buildings talking down through an open window. I heaved a short, amused sigh and let a shudder roll down my shoulders. The old bat was probably having a good laugh at my expense, and why not? She'd seen her opportunity to have a little fun, and I couldn't fault her for that. I'd like to think I'd probably do the same when I got to be her age. 
how to keep the kids off my lawn somehow. Even still, my pace had picked up a bit, and I pulled my phone out as a distraction. People were already flooding social media with pictures from the show, and I wanted to see if I'd made it into any of them. Although she continued to grow fainter the further away I went, her words remained clear, and each one prickled uneasily up my arms. I didn't stop, but I did look back. Nothing and no one, just a dark sidewalk, just my shadow, just my footsteps, hurrying faster in time with the beat of my heart. I glanced at my phone again. 12.36 a.m. How mad would one of my friends be if I tried to call them, I wondered. I wanted the company. It was a whisper from somewhere far behind me now. Some old lady just having a laugh. But I started to run. My cell squeezed tight in one hand, my other balled into a white-knuckled fist. My feet pounded against the pavement, echoed off of brickwork, and my breath came in ragged grunts as I pushed myself to keep going until I reached my hotel. Just three more blocks. Two. One. I staggered, clutching at my burning chest, and had to steady myself against the nearest wall. She was so faint I barely heard her over the blood rushing in my ears. The hot breath against the nape of my neck was very close, however. <laughs> and the hooked nails that sank into my shoulders dragged me backward, closer still, into her waiting grin. Die Laughing by Barbara Posey. I always wanted to do stand-up. That was my career choice. And I worked hard at it. Everything in your life is potential material. But you have to have a certain amount of luck. In your birthplace, parents, teachers. You have to have good comic ore to mine. For me, it's been a real struggle. Tonight is my big chance and I hope you'll be a kind audience. No? Well, I'll do my best. You know, they say you can't make out faces in the audience, and I see that's true. I wonder if that's a help or a hindrance. We'll see, won't we? So, here's my routine. My life was too boring. White bread parents, white bread siblings, white bread me. No dysfunction to draw on like the Sedaris's. School, friends, teachers. No abuse, no drama, nothing. No heart attack or accidental self-arson like Richard Pryor. I, I did consider lighting myself on fire on purpose, but that wouldn't have had quite the same comedic potential, right? No sarcastic spouse to mine like Phyllis Diller since I didn't even have a boyfriend. I wasn't born illegal like Trevor Noah. Hopeless. 
You, you can see I'm not much to look at, but not a dog either. It's boring, right? Nothing to work with there either. But I thought I could find someone to be sarcastic at me if I could get married. And by God, I found someone. He was perfect. Too handsome. And of course, he would know it too popular. And he must be shallow, right? But somehow, I got him to marry me. Did I tell you he was perfect? That was the problem. He was kind, considerate, unselfish. Nothing to work with. And then we bought a house. No money pit problems, darn it. And it turned out he could do anything. Carpentry, plumbing, wiring, painting. So, no Dagwood stories. Meanwhile, I couldn't find any place to perform. And he, instead of being dismissive, he was sympathetic and supportive. He found me a practice improv group. Without a performance venue, we met at each other's houses. So I found out he could cook. He made refreshments, he made props, costumes. And then one night, one of the other players pulled him into his kit and he aced it. He was better than I was. So I killed him. Nothing, no pause, no laughs. Not even a gasp or two. Okay. Warden, you might as well pull the- Ignore the Drowning Man by Patrick Narvasa. When I was a kid, my parents would always drag me to a certain beach resort during the summer. It was a place that started with a K, hidden in the many islands of the Philippines. To be honest, I never really bothered remembering it since I swore I would never set foot on that beach again. I'd just turned 13 when I first got to see it. The hotel we were staying at had the perfect view of the beach and the wide sea stretching across what seemed to be the whole world. During the day, the sand was white and the water was clear and green. At night, the white sand would turn blue and the water almost black. But during this stay, the moon was shining brightly above the water. It was past midnight and my parents were already sound asleep while I was busy playing with my Game Boy. Frustrated from losing repeatedly, I decided to take a break and stare at the moon for a while. That's when I saw a silhouette of a man splashing round in the middle of the sea. His arms were raised up and his head was shaking around as he became submerged in the dark waters, only to re-emerge and begin the whole struggle again. My parents got up and saw nothing, but still went downstairs and alerted the hotel manager to have it investigated. While talking to the manager, 
an old lady housekeeper crouched beside me. Ignore the drowning man. I was confused, obviously, but I felt the seriousness in her tone and the fear that emanated from her. The next night, I saw him again. I tried to shrug it off, but still felt a chill down my spine, seeing him again for the second time. I attempted to go back to sleep and hoped he would just go away. The last night of our stay, my parents decided to get a few things down inside our car, parked in front of the hotel. I helped my dad carry a few bags and headed outside where the cold sea breeze greeted us enthusiastically. I went towards the car, but stopped as he caught my eye again. The drowning man. But this time, he was much closer to the shore. Dad, it's him! My dad dropped the bags he was carrying as he saw the man too. Wait here, I'll call for help. Shortly after Dad left, I realized that looking for help wouldn't be necessary. The man raised from the sea, his back revealing a long stem attached to something just beneath him, like a puppet. He slowly submerged and disappeared back into the waters, followed by a scaly serpentine body that glistened under the moonlight. On the next years we visited, I always ignored the drowning man. Digging Up My Dad by T.A. Olvin It's been almost 226 days since we buried my dad. That's roughly 325,000 minutes, or 19,500,000 seconds. It's not like I'm counting or anything, but it seems important somehow to remember. My mom says we have to move him, or else they might find him. And we don't want that. Might mean a world of trouble if they do. I'm not sure how deep he is, but it isn't six feet. More like four? Still, it isn't easy. There's a lot of dirt, and we are all so tired. My sister, my mom, and me. But it has to be done. It just can't be helped. I don't want to go to prison. I don't want any of us to go to prison. He had it coming. That's what she said. He was a bad man. A very bad man. He shouldn't have done the things he did. He shouldn't have hurt us. And he had to pay for it. We all do when we do bad things. That's how we learn. He wouldn't learn, though, so he had to go in the ground. My mom backed the truck up real close to the hole. We don't need the box, she says. Just Dad. 
just the body. We'd already prepared a new hole for him. A new box. Mom helped me get him out of the box and onto the back of the truck, while my sister started shoveling the dirt back into the hole. He smelled real bad. Horrible. I almost had to puke several times. But we did it. The new hole was miles away. It was deeper than the other one, six feet or more. He would be safe there. No one could find him. He would serve his punishment. He was wheezing, begging, tugging at me, but he was too weak to do anything. We replaced the IV bags and attached the new oxygen canisters to the box and gently lowered him in there. Two years left. Then we buried my dad again. Surgery by Olivia White. I wake up in a bathtub filled with ice with the pain in my side like nothing I've ever felt before. It takes me a moment to work out where I am, what's happened, what's going on. Then it all comes flooding back. Dad's illness, his failing kidney, my suitability as a donor, the request, my answer. I reach down to the site of my agony and feel the rough, haphazard stitching that holds me closed. I am naked, cold, shivering, and angry. So very, very angry. I begin to haul myself out of the bathtub, ice crackling around me. I scream, unfettered and guttural as the pain increases. Gaining purchase on the lip of the tub, I heave myself out. My naked body slaps against the slick tiles of the bathroom floor. Such a short drop, but the pain from the impact is indescribable. I lie there for a moment and allow myself the luxury of tears. Then, using the tub for stability, I haul myself to my feet. My soles slip on the floor, wet from ice that slopped over the side and melted. I almost fall, and I brace myself for more agony. But I keep my balance, wincing, crying, and moaning. I take step after step towards the bathroom door, towards freedom, towards my father. A day has passed when I enter my dad's bedroom. A day in which all I could do was sleep and scream. Now there's a spring in my step and a confidence in my walk. The pain is dulled tremendously thanks to some heavy-duty oxy I got from a friend. It'll wear off soon. That's fine, it, it doesn't need to last long. Dad is sitting up in bed. His lunch tray is still on his lap, not yet collected by his live-in nurse stroke home help. Every last scrap of the meal is eaten. He always did like burgers. Hey, Dad. His face is sallow, haunted. He looks older than his 61 years. He looks like a, a man facing death and knowing he isn't ready. Jay, we haven't heard from you in a couple days. I got worried. Worried about your lifeline, you mean? I glance down at my abdomen. Hurt flashes across Dad's face. No, of course not. I just... I was concerned. Well, I'm afraid I have some bad news. 
I lift up my shirt to reveal the ragged, ugly wound on my stomach over where my left kidney used to be. Dad's look is one of confusion and horror. What? How's... Oh, don't worry. The mythical organ harvesters didn't get me. I'm pretty sure the wound will heal fine. I was as careful as I could be. Operating on yourself isn't easy, though. Jeez. I... What? You did this? To yourself? Sure. So, hey, Dad, uh, remember how you asked me to donate a kidney and save your life and I said yes? He can only nod, too dumbstruck to speak. Well, I lied. And what's more, I was so adamant that you knock at it that, well, I, uh, I did this. Dad's mouth opens and closes like a disgusting, wrinkled fish. Oh, it wasn't so difficult, really. I just needed it out. Not like the organ had to be functional afterwards. Oh, and Dad? He nods dumbly. If you're wondering where the kidney is, (laughs) well, did you enjoy your burger? (laughs) I guess you did get it inside you after all. Rage, pain, and anguish cycle across Dad's face. He tries to get out of bed to approach me, to attack me, to hold me. I don't think he even knows, but he can't manage it. Instead, his wasting body falls to the floor. He looks up at me from the ground, pathetic and small at my feet, and rasps out what he's dying to know. Why? Why do you hate me this much? What have I done that would cause you to mutilate yourself like this just to snatch away my one chance at survival? I look down at him for a moment, prone at my feet, and I think, why not? It's done. This is as good a time as any for my big reveal. To tell him why my hatred has festered under the surface for so many years while I dutifully played the good daughter waiting for a chance like this. Well, Dad... Remember that one Christmas where you got Robbie a bike? And I got a Cabbage Patch doll? I really wanted a bike, Dad. Really, really wanted one. I Discovered the Meaning of Life by Christopher Maxim. So, I discovered the meaning of life, or at least that's what my eager customers are led to believe. You see, two or three times a month I post a listing titled The Meaning of Life to various auction sites. I couple it with a sappy picture of a sunset or rainbow and a description that reads, All views are subjective. Results may vary. Now, most people wouldn't bat an eye at such a ridiculous listing, but there are some gullible folks out there that take the bait. When the bidding ends, I usually take home anywhere from $5 to $12. After I've received my money via PayPal, I ship out the item. What is the item, you might ask? Well, I scribble down an inspirational quote or life lesson onto a piece of paper and mail it out in your standard letter-sized envelope. The quotes are usually from famous writers, historical figures, or the Bible. Some of them include... If light is in your heart, you will find your way home. Quoted from Rumi. People will forget what you said 
People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Quoted from Maya Angelou. It's never too late to be what you might have been. Quoted from George Eliot. And that's it. One stamp, a drop in the mailbox, and my work is done. It's as simple as that. You might call me a scammer or con artist or perhaps even a plagiarist. And in truth, you are correct. I'm taking advantage of the naive people out there who are probably just looking for a sense of purpose in life. All so I can make a quick buck. But I'd like to think most people know it's bullshit and purchase my listing just to see what I'll send them. Besides, I'm a bachelor right out of college. So long as I can make a small dent in my phone bill and eat a package of ramen each night, I'll sleep just fine. As you might imagine, I receive quite a bit of hate mail. I've learned to ignore angry emails and private messages on the auction sites. As soon as I see one that's from one of my customers, it gets deleted. I do, however, receive the occasional snail mail. It's unavoidable as my P.O. box is listed on all the envelopes I send out. It would be pretty easy for me to toss these letters in the trash with the rest of my junk mail, but I never can. Something about receiving a physical letter from someone, good or bad, compels me to read it. I feel that anyone who takes the time to write one deserves to have their voice heard, even if I don't really care for what they have to say. The more physical letters I receive, the more amused I am by them. To paint a better picture, here are a few of my favorite quotes from the fan mail I've received over the years. You're nothing but a glorified fortune cookie service. You'll rot in hell for the sins you've committed, mark my words. You're a real fucking piece of shit, you know that? I've reached the point where reading these letters has become the highlight of my week. I've even tacked up some of the better ones on a corkboard in my bedroom. You might think that's a little sick and messed up, but I think it's hilarious. Not all of the letters I receive are bad. There's one guy goes by the name of Red. No last name, that's all he ever writes above his return address. He mails me constantly. He sends me inspirational quotes in exchange for mine. I assume he's a repeat buyer who enjoys paying for and receiving cheerful messages in his mailbox every now and again. A man of class and dignity. My kind of customer. The first quote Red ever sent me was, The fear of death follows from the fear of life. A man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. From Mark Twain. This was a great first impression, as Mark Twain is one of my favorite authors. The return quote was much appreciated. As such, I hung it up next to the hate mail on my corkboard. Now, some of the things Red sends me, however, are not corkboard material. Some of the quotes he sends are morbid and depressing, and other times he'll mail me small packages containing little trinkets that I have no use for. It's a little weird, but I figure the guy is depressed and just needs a friend. Maybe the quotes he buys from me are the only thing he has to look forward to each morning. Perhaps the things he sends me are his way of saying thanks. 
To me, it's validation that what I'm doing isn't completely sleazy. But here's where things get weird. Today, I received another envelope from Red. I smiled when I pulled it out of my P.O. box. His letters and gifts, no matter how odd, were just as much, if not more, of a highlight to my week than the endlessly entertaining hate mail. Upon opening the envelope, however, my smile vanished. Inside was a photograph of me, taken up close through my bedroom window. On the back of the photograph was another one of Red's quotes. You look so alone. Where's the meaning in your life? Traitor by M. Chapel. You know, it's funny, really. In a maximum security prison filled with murderers and rapists, the worst thing they can do to you is leave you completely alone. Solitary confinement. The human brain needs input, or it quickly descends into horrifying madness of its own company. In 2086, when the world government fell into a dictatorship, capital punishment became very common. However, it was solitary confinement that people feared. That was reserved just for treason. I spent my working life making the solitary confinement cells and carrying out the confinement. Here's how it works. The cells are molded to exactly fit the condemned. They are human-shaped coffins, arms out to the side at 30 degrees, legs 45 degrees apart. During the insertion process, the traitors are sedated. The eyes, ears, and mouth are not damaged, but all are sealed permanently shut. An automated breathing tube is inserted through the throat. Three IV lines are inserted to feed nutrients. We use three lines in case of mechanical failure on one. Catheters are inserted to handle waste. The condemned are sealed in and buried in the very public traitor's graveyard with enough autonomous supplies to last 80 years, but to be considered dead from that day. Nasty, right? Well, that has been my job for the last 20 years, and I am pretty numb to the idea of it. One person a day entered the traitor's graveyard. This was so that the condemned person's story could feature on the evening news, along with their frenzied begging for a pardon. It hasn't caused me distress in many years. The defendant is found guilty of treason. 
That was until last week, when I was convicted of treason. I can't really argue. I mean, I'm guilty. But after seeing the things I have seen, is it surprising I turned to murder? This regime, it needs to be brought down. This barbaric practice of solitary confinement needs to end now. But it will take a better man than me to achieve that. Today, I wake up from the sedation, my eyes and mouth sealed shut. Deafening silence and dazzling blackness greet my panicked brain. Fight or flight response kicks in and I choose between zero options. I I can't move an inch. Even my fingers are molded in place. I just keep thinking about all those people I put down here. All the things that I wish I had done differently. I can't have been down here for more than a week, and I would choose death if I could. At this point, I I would give anything to take back the treason I committed, the 7,000 people I killed. I only did it to save others from the untold suffering. I did it while they were sedated. Just a syringe of air into their veins to cause cardiac arrest. One murder each day for 20 years. It's just me alive down here, living the life of a traitor. Deaf Ears by Alexandra Grunberg My head ached from the pounding beat, and I wished Marcus had chosen a spot at the concert further from the speakers. I pushed my earplugs in deeper, and though the screeches of the singer and the electric grind of the guitar were muffled, the bass vibrated my bones. Fuck you, Marcus, wherever you are. He disappeared to get drinks and left me in the corner, caught between the speaker and the pulsing crowd, blinded by lasers and pyrotechnics. I only wanted to see Stallion, but they canceled unexpectedly. If they were playing, they would have been on next, and then I would have been able to go home. But Marcus realized an old high school friend was in the band closing out the night at two in the morning which meant I had to survive for three more hours. A small, sweaty girl with green hair fell into me, and I pushed her away. The girl's mouth moved, probably expressing some crude abuse, but the words fell on deaf ears. I was masochistically curious at what the girl might have said, but her slick skin and green hair disappeared into the writhing mass of concert-goers before I could take out my earplugs and try to make my own fun. A girl who could not have been old enough to be there flashed the band from her boyfriend's shoulders. How could I have ever wanted to be a rock star? How could I have sung at that 
music was one thing, a good thing, and I missed being in a band with other like-minded musical women. The people who frequented concerts were something else. Not just bad, but distasteful, disrespectful, deaf to the art in their pursuit of ecstasy. My bandmates used to long for sold-out shows and devoted fans. I hated the fans. The few we had were creepy and aggressive. The lighting changed, darker and more subdued, as a fog machine set the mood for the next act. Not Stallion, but some other all-girl band, wearing inky black dresses, absurd heels, and blue streaks in their hair. I rolled my eyes, ignoring the fact that I had recently washed out my own pink tips. The lead singer began to mouth lyrics too close to the mic, her lips practically pressed against it. When the guitarist joined in for what I guessed was harmony, she performed the same obscene gesture. But at least the beat wasn't offensive. If I closed my eyes and listened to the hint of the tune that passed through my earplugs, I could kind of enjoy it. But the harmony was strange. It sounded too high, maybe off-key, grating. Someone else bumped into me and I shoved them away. Eyes tight, body still swaying slightly to the pleasurable beat. Another weight fell on me, and it did not respond to my pushing. I opened my eyes and bit back a scream. The man who had fallen onto me, one of the muscled bouncers I passed on the way into the venue, was dead, his eyes open, his mouth trapped in a small smile. All the people in the room had collapsed, some still twitching, most completely still, except for the band, though I couldn't call them people anymore. Great wings, black and leathery, had unfurled from their backs, stretching out behind them, framing their activities like a rising curtain. They had hitched up their dresses over their knees to crouch above the bodies, and I could see scaly legs leading down to... Not heels. Those were claws, large and curved, two ending forward like pointing toes, one balancing them in the back from where it sprouted at their ankles. Their nails were more human, an absurd gothic manicure on two long acrylics but that was all they needed to tear into their victim's flesh. One of them looked up, the lead singer, and she caught me watching her. Her mouth was moving, not chewing, though she had stuffed her cheeks with blood and flesh. She was still singing. I knew I should run, but I found myself curious to know what this creature was singing. The beat still thrummed from the speaker, and I leaned against it, letting the bass envelop me. To hear the song would have required moving my hands to take out my earplugs, but they felt too heavy. The beat made my whole body too heavy. Instead, I slid down, hitting the ground hard, legs splaying out in front of me as I watched the band eat and eat and eat. Watch the lead singer tear a piece from one body. He was going to get a drink. He disappeared to get drinks. Impatient.
impaling the chunk on two long fingers before feeding it to one of her bandmates, repeating the action again with the other. The creatures opened their mouths, pressing their lips much further than they did with the mics, sucking off the flesh and swallowing it. The leader dug her fingers into the familiar body once more and walked over to me, and I could imagine the click of her talons on the floor, even though I could not hear them. She knelt in front of me, holding out her hand, offering the flesh, smiling as she sang her silent song. A gift. An invitation. Every person in the venue was dead. But I never wanted fans. I wanted to be part of a band. Impossible Night by Rick McQuiston Sean bit his lip to keep his temper in check. This is impossible. It, it, It can't be. But the more he strained his eyes at the phenomena scanned 15 feet in front of him, the more it drove its reality into his brain. Sean felt both angry and confused. He was going to be late for work, and he didn't have time for some weird eclipse that decided to manifest in the middle of the road. He fumbled for his cell phone, never taking his eyes off the immense sheet of blackness in front of his car. Hello? Hello? His words were swallowed by the dead silence on the other end of the line. He pulled his phone away from his face and looking at the screen noticed it was blank. Flinging it into the dashboard, he watched as the device separated into several pieces on impact. A series of cracks snaked across the screen, and the protective case it was in ripped, exposing delicate components. Great! Just freaking great! Sean forced himself to settle down. He had to remember his blood pressure. He was stuck in his car, already late for work, with a broken cell phone and some black wall in front of him. Getting angry would do no good. He tilted his head back and couldn't help but marvel at how the wall seemed to stop just short of where the sun hung in the sky. A stark line stretched horizontally in both directions as far as he could see, effectively creating a black panel that appeared to be painted on. Sean took a deep breath, wondering what he was going to do. He couldn't go forward, God only knew what it really was, and turning around would mean he'd be late for work even more. Deciding to get out of his car, Sean approached the wall. He turned the key in the ignition off and stepped out onto the cracked asphalt. The wall stood before him like a great black canvas, void of features or apparent purpose. It choked the landscape with its immensity and defied logic or explanation with its grip on the sanity of all who beheld it. 
Sean took a tentative step forward, and then another. As he drew closer to the wall, he noticed how it seemed to create a vacuum, a hollow cavity that yearned to be filled. It pulled him toward it. It hungered for him. He reached out a hand, coming to within a few feet of the wall. Oddly, other than the feeling of a vacuum, he didn't sense anything else. There was no heat or cold, no sound, not even static electricity. Nothing but a blank slate that shouldn't exist, but did. It was an impossible sheet of night. With each passing second, Sean's thoughts about his job drifted further into obscurity. Suddenly, jeopardizing his career just didn't seem important anymore. He stared at the darkness, trying to penetrate it with his gaze. There was depth there. Depth that bore straight through the planet's core and tapped into unrealized dimensions. Sean stepped forward. His legs moved without his consent. Time slowed. He felt himself losing control of his body and, try as he might, it was taking him where he didn't want to go. The wall. <laughs> no! No! But there was no one around to hear him. He cocked his head back and winced at the bright sunshine on his face. Please! Someone help me! He moved closer to the wall, approaching its impossible surface. He noticed that the sun was dipping below the wall, becoming an insignificant dot in the fading sky. Its normally brilliant luminescence was dimming. The wall was absorbing it, sucking it dry as it expanded its dark nothingness. Sean felt constricted, as if his world, the world of light, was being squeezed into non-existence. He felt claustrophobic, even though he was standing outside. He closed his eyes and tried to imagine his happy place. In it, he was perched on a dock that jutted out over the serene waters of Mullet Lake. It was his favorite place to fish, a veritable hotspot of walleye and largemouth bass just itching to be caught. His fishing pole hung over the side, held lazily in his hands. Occasionally, hungry fish nibbled at the bait fastened to the end of the line. Sean let a smile slide across his face. Even though he was firmly entrenched in his pleasant daydream, he made sure he wasn't moving forward. He stood still. He didn't want to get any closer to the wall. He was at a comfortable median, enjoying his happy place and keeping a safe distance from the most likely dangerous anomaly back in the real world. The fishing pole jerked in his hands. The wall inched closer. A plump bass tried to spin away from the water's surface. Darkness swelled, touching the tips of Sean's feet, then his hands, and finally his torso and face. The fish broke the surface, the hook snagged in its gaping mouth. Sean could sense the sun sinking behind the wall. A light chill slipped over him then, one that wasn't unpleasant. 
It was more of a surprise than anything, and Sean found himself surrendering to its embrace. He knew it was the wrong thing to do, but in some far-off, detached sort of way, he wanted it. He needed it. The darkness enveloped him, slowly, smoothly, painlessly, wrapping him up in its mysterious cocoon. He opened his eyes and saw paradise. With tentative but anxious steps, Sean felt himself walking toward a body of water. He recognized it. It was Mullet Lake. It was where he loved to fish, and he could already see the walleye and bass practically jumping out of the water. My happy place. I'm in my happy place. All thoughts about his previous life faded into insignificance. His family, his job, his friends. None of it mattered anymore. None of it existed. The wall had absorbed all of it. The wall had absorbed him. He had been transformed into sustenance, becoming nothing more than a meal for the expanding entity that was engulfing the world. Sean broke into a trot. He was excited to reach the water's edge and stake out a good spot. He didn't have his pole or bait, but was confident he wouldn't need them. In paradise, the fish (laughs) threw themselves at you. All he would have to do is sit and wait for them. He fell to the ground when his feet dissolved, oozing into the grass like hot wax. His legs quickly followed, and then his torso. His body was melting as the digestion process started. And before long, all he could do was look skyward and see that everything was turning dark. The night was hungry. Halloween by Keith McDuffie Bill left the den air conditioner on again. I'm sure I will never understand why that man insists it be as cold as an icebox on the North Pole every blessed moment in this house. And my lord, is it noisy. The quiet night air is just fine without it this time of year, so off it goes. Well, he will just have to settle with being a tad stuffy, as I seem to recall him putting himself. Better stuffy than catching your death, I say. It's just as well. With him busying himself with Lord knows what in the cellar again, while I'm left to my lonesome upstairs alone. Lonesome. I can't say why. But I feel as though I should be saddened by the thought. I love Bill dearly and all, but the man can be quite nonsensical at times. 
Most times that I can recall, I say. <laughs> An enigma he is. Never can understand him. There is what sounds to be a light knock on the porch door. At first, I think the sound to be Bill again, messing with his doodads and whatnots in that hellish place down below. But sure as snowflakes, there it is again. I think to myself, what an odd hour for a visitor. Here at the end of this farm road that's sure to be a clear half mile long. A neighbor, perhaps? I hope they're all right. It is quite late. Bill usually likes to answer to visitors these days, so I wait for him to head on up. But again the knocking, and I'd say with a fair level of some insistence for an answer now. Oh, to hell with Bill. Coming! Though the porch light is on, the door is without windows, so I cannot see who might be outside. I think to open it before my wits overcome me. Who is it? It seems a dog's age before there's a reply. I cover my mouth to stifle a laugh, and I shake my head in sheer disappointment in myself for having not known what day it was. Of all the blessed days of the year, how could I have forgotten that today was Halloween? I've had no time for decorations. No candy. Why, no costume of my own. How could Bill have not reminded me? That scoundrel of a man. Without further hesitation, I pull the door open to its widest. There on the front porch is a solitary figure. A child who couldn't be but ten. A little girl. Or so I believe as her costume is by far and wide one to behold. Ch-trick. Oh, would you look at you. That is a scary costume you have there. So gruesome. And indeed it is gruesome. Delightfully so. While she wears an adorable blue fairy tale-like dress with a white smock, it is near fully soiled by soot and costume blood. The mask she wears is indeed a terrifying sight. The appearance of what was once a beautiful girl, now a ruin of flesh and bone so much as to be unrecognizable. There is only but one eye I can see, precariously dangling from what appears to be fine thread. Only half of what would be gorgeous locks of golden hair cover her head. The rest a mass of reddened scalp beneath exposed skull. An elaborate piece that I must say I do admire. Her speech is but a gurgle, what with all the flesh parts of her mask covering her mouth. It's a wonder you can speak. Tell me, did your folks help you put that together? Your mom? At this she falls silent. Her breath ragged. Only her empty bag hangs open before her. It, too, is soiled as her garb. Oh, my goodness. I'm so embarrassed. Sorry. My mind is not so sharp these days. I don't have any. But I do. 
I do. And I may just about jump for joy if I could at the recollection. I hold out a finger of weight to the girl and rush back inside. Bill has forever had a sweet tooth. I and his dentures could not forget this unfortunate fact. Reaching the kitchen, I open his cabinet, nearly clear off its hinges, and reach inside. A Hershey's chocolate bar. It's the only one left, with two squares already taken. I suppose I will just fault Bill for not thinking so clearly himself, in that it is he who'd kept his own stock so light and will now have to go without. I arrive back to the porch. The girl remains, seemingly swaying to an unsung song, patiently awaiting her bounty. Her costume, it appears, has gotten the best of the remains of her dress, it now more red than not. Here we are. I'm so sorry. It's opened. My husband has a way with candy, I guess you could say. Hope you don't mind. I place Bill's last bit of indulgence into the girl's bag, careful as I can not to have it covered in the mess that continues to issue from her mask. She speaks, but for the life of me, I can't make sense of what she is trying to say. But there is something. Where did you come from, dear? Where are your folks? Again, there is something. My mind. God damn my mind. Have I seen you around before, sweetie? I'm not sure what I've done to cause it, but she turns and walks away. Down the porch steps, down the pebbled driveway, out into the night. A night cold enough to bring my own breath to a fog before me. Much too cold for air conditioning, and far too dark for a little girl to rightfully be traveling in alone. I motion to call out. I stop something that compels me to run off after her. If there is nothing else I know, it is that my frail, godforsaken legs would not carry me far. Least of all down the stairs. Just as I close the door, Bill is in the kitchen. He'd come up and I hadn't noticed. Irene? At first I don't answer. There is something within me that has something to say, yet it just will not come. Something. Irene, did you eat my Hershey's? No, Bill, I... Bill, why didn't you tell me it was Halloween? What? Halloween! Halloween! You didn't. You didn't think to remind me it was Halloween. Halloween? There was... Bill's concerned. He has that face again. He doesn't care about the chocolate anymore and comes into the living room, pulls me into his big arms. He smells like the old boxes of things we store our photographs and memories in. Sometimes the entire house smells like him. Sometimes, like now. I think I like it. Honey? 
Honey, Halloween, I know. Your favorite holiday, we used to call it. Used to wonder why the station didn't give me the day off. It was my favorite day, wasn't it? It is my favorite day. <laughs> he laughs a little, like he's remembering something, too. Uh, you could say that, yeah. We used to have this whole place decked out in spiderwebs. Had me play scary music from the stereo. Lord knows nobody came up this neck of the woods for candy, but that did not stop you. He laughs again, but it seems different now. <laughs> you used to dress up to scare the devil himself. I swear. Last time, oh Lord, it was so long ago. I think I recall you and Bonnie dressed up as fairy tale characters. You were, uh, uh oh, you were the Mad Hatter, only with his head cut off. You held a bloody melon with a hat in your hands. Oh, <laughs> you were mad, all right. But not Bonnie. She. Bonnie? His hug gets tight. It feels good, but I know there's something not quite right. Yeah, she. Well, she just wanted to be Alice in Wonderland. Nothing scary, just so pretty. Who's Bonnie? Bill pulls away and hides his face from me, wiping cellar grime from his face and eyes. Our girl, Irene. Our Bonnie. Oh, after all these years, I still miss her. You know, it's why I'm downstairs all the time, looking at all those old pictures we have of her. And today, today, of course. Halloween. <laughs> he laughs, sounding a bit more like himself. Well, today, today she would have been 40 years old. Her birthday, 40. Can you believe that, Irene? Christ, we are old. He holds me again. 29 years. I thought I'd lost you both. He lets me go and starts into the den. I still can make no sense of what he's going on about. You know, there aren't a whole lot of blessings I can come up with these days, but there are three in particular that help me sleep at night. What's that? Well, one, and sorry to have to admit this, but that accident made you unable to ever drive again. Two, that... That horrible thing you went through last time you drove with Bonnie. You know, it did something to your mind where you can't remember what happened to our little girl. Sometimes I envy you of that. And I thank God you're mostly okay. Little girl. Bonnie. I feel at any moment my Bill is going to hop right into the Halloween spirit unlike he'd ever done and tell me this is all some scary story. Some awful, awful nightmare of a story. And that Halloween is as special of a time to him as it's ever been to me. And the third? What's that? He presses the button on the air conditioner. And the silence of the night is as gone as my recollection of why we are having such an odd conversation in the first place. <laughs> well... Air conditioning. Sweet, sweet AC. Whew, my God, is it stuffy. It's the middle of July, Irene.
Return by Jasmine Forrestal. A cold breeze rattles through dying leaves. I'll probably need my heavy coat tomorrow, but not yet. As long as there are still red and orange leaves clinging to life, it isn't winter. I shiver, pulling my leather jacket tighter around me. It's still beautiful out here, despite the early morning frost, despite the chill in the air and the deep gray sky. These woods are still beautiful. They will be no matter what. I turn a corner on the path, grinning as I recognize the Pop Rocks tree. <laughs> it's called this because I once found a stash of full-sized candy bars and Pop Rocks here. They were my older brothers. God, I miss Cameron. A chill permeates every inch of this place. I check the blackberry bushes for fruit, but they're as barren as the apple trees behind the house. I used to come here every summer, but recently my life's been providing excuses for me not to come. Last year, my car broke down. The year before, I didn't have the money to leave the city. This year, I finally made it back. Back to the old cabin. Back to the lake and the woods and the Pop Rocks tree. What if Cameron stashed more candy in the hollow part last year before the car crash? He always managed to make it down to the cabin, him and his kids. Climbing the tree is like riding a bicycle. It's been years, but somehow my creaking adult body manages it. Peering into the hollow, all I see are the candy wrappers that have been there for over 20 years. No. Cameron never stashed candy there again. I chuckle, looking around. <laughs> I bet I could see the house from here. Instead, I see something else. Something that causes me to frown. Nothing should be that green at this time of year. The branch beneath my feet bends and snaps without warning and I find myself plummeting towards the blackberry bushes below. I brace myself for impact, expecting the worst. I end up with only a few scratches and an ache in my side where I hit the ground. I'm too intrigued to care. What was that I saw? It looked like a massive green circle, just barely a 20 minute walk to the east. I begin to wander towards it, only limping a little from the fall. I can't fall out of a tree like I used to. I hesitate when I see a strip of neon plastic tape tied around a tree. I remember how our parents always told us to stay within the limits of the tape or we get lost. My curiosity is too strong for childhood fear to crush and I march onwards. The air grows almost imperceptibly warmer as I continue, and I'm brought back to summer afternoons in these woods. 
in the one place where I felt truly at home in this scary little world. My bittersweet nostalgia is abruptly cut through with confusion. Is that a hedge maze? It is. Standing tall and proud, pristine, green, and gorgeous. I can't help but laugh at the sheer absurdity of it all. There's a hedge maze in the woods, and it's practically balmy here, despite it being late November in Atlantic Canada. I need to see what's in the middle. I step through the maze entrance, and the world is suddenly warm. It smells like summer, not the faint, cold decay of autumn. I can feel the sun's heat on my back. A long green corridor stretches out to either side. Without thinking, I turn left. I've never been good at navigating mazes, but my feet seem to know where to take me. I don't know what I'll find at the center of this maze. All I know is that it'll answer my questions. All of them. I break into a run, the ache in my side gone. I don't care if I get lost. There's an opening that leads deeper into the maze. I turn down it, going right. Left leads to only dead ends. Just like my job. Just like every damn job I've ever had. It's hotter here. I pause, panting. I take my jacket off, tying it around my waist. This is more like it. I've spent too many summers cooped up in my chilly, air-conditioned office. I forgot what real heat feels like. I move onward, determined, though something nags at the back of my mind. I come to a crossroads, and I finally notice it. The leaves here are noticeably wilted. It's hotter, too. A dry sort of heat, the kind that makes me wish I'd brought water. Something's wrong. I turn around, but the path behind me is blocked by a dying hedge. The only way out is forward. I march onwards. Maybe if I make it to the center. My mistake dawns on me quickly as I see how rapidly the maze dies around me. Now that it has me trapped, it can show its cards. I'm sure I could have left any time before I noticed there was something wrong. I continue, knowing that with every turn I make, the exit closes behind me. Soon, there are no leaves. Only gray, dry, rotted branches. And yet even without the foliage, somehow I can't see through the maze's walls to the outside world. The dead leaves turn to dust under my feet. My mouth is like sandpaper. My only hope is the center. My only hope. Only hope. I don't know how long I walk. At some point I notice that the dead leaves have become sand and the walls are crumbling stone. I don't care anymore. All I care about is the center. All I care. Care. Do I care anymore? All at once, the ground is rushing up at me, 
My head swims as the sand fills my dry mouth. I need to get out of here. I need the center. I'll crawl if I have to. How long have I been here? I don't know. My world is hot sand and crawling and burning thirst. And then, it's not. I feel the cool caress of grass on my face. I look up. Tall hedges surround a tiny oasis. The center. I see a pool and begin crawling forward desperately. I need the sweet water. I need to stop the thirst. I stop. Face inches from the surface of the pool. Is... Is that my reflection? No, it, it can't be. That shriveled corpse can't be me. Its lips are pulled back from dry teeth. Sunken yellow eyes stare out of gaping sockets. Its hair withers and dies as I watch. No, it isn't me. It's a trick. I bring my hand up to my face. My skin turns to dust before my eyes. I desperately dip my hand into the water and it dissolves, sinking into the depths to join the dust at the bottom. I'm hopeless. I let myself fall in. And then, I'm nothing. Back from the Dead by Manon Lysat. Blood trickled from his gashed, mangled head as his milky white eyes settled on me. My heart lurched. I could hardly breathe. He'd made it through from the shoulders up now. I could see it all, his, his nearly skinless face, his rotten yellow teeth, his bones peeking between atrophied muscles. He was painstakingly squeezing himself out, bit by bit. The summoning circle seemed far too small for his frame. The lights flickered and I could feel my bedroom growing colder. A hand emerged from the darkness below him, then the forearm, then the arm. It trembled as it reached out, its fingers splayed and dragged like the tines of a rake, but he wasn't clawing at the ground. He was beckoning me closer. I knelt before him and took his hand in mine, tears in my eyes. You're doing great, sunshine. One last step, then I'll be free. It was working. I couldn't believe it, but it was working. I was bringing Dad back from the dead. I was five years old when Dad died in a car crash. Mom purged the house of everything to do with him, photos, home movies, clothes, shoes, leaving me with only a few hazy memories of him and the wool cardigan he'd draped over me in bed before leaving that fateful night. I was devastated, but as they say, kids are resilient, and I survived. Still, I would have given up anything, even all my toys, to have him back. A sentiment that followed me through the years. Which brings me to a few weeks ago. Tyler brought a Ouija board to school and slapped it on the table in front of me during lunch, grinning ear to ear. 
Sasha, put that sandwich away. We're going to talk to the spirits. I rolled my eyes. <laughs> Those things don't work. This one will. I bought it at an antique store, so you know this shit's the real deal. I rolled my eyes again, but I was bored. My sandwich tasted stale, and Tyler looked so damn invested. He started up about autumn spirit energy or whatever. God, teenage boys can be so dumb. I shrugged my shoulders and waved in half-hearted agreement. Tyler placed the planchette on the board and we touched our fingertips to it, rolling circles. I wasn't expecting anything to happen. Oh, great Ouija board. Help us open the doors to the underworld. Let us speak with the departed and may they fill us with their wisdom. I was unimpressed, to say the least. It was mostly just pointing at random letters that made no sense, but... After about five minutes into playing, he came through. The letters spelled out. Hello. Oh, look, it's finally working. No, it's not. You're moving it. What? I'm not. If anyone's moving it, it's you. Uh, uh no. Whatever. Come on, just ask it a question. God, who are you? The planchette moved again, forming a sentence. It's me, sunshine. I felt my stomach drop. Only one person in the world had ever called me that. Dad? I'm here. Okay, how the fuck are you doing that? You're barely touching it. I'm not... Dad? Dad, can you hear me? Hello. Hello, sunshine. It's me. I'm here. Stop messing around. I told you I'm not doing this. The planchette jutted back and forth at a frantic pace. My hands could barely keep up with it. It's so dark and cold here. Let me out. They're hurting me. They're hurting... What the fuck? Tyler let go. He was getting prickly, looking more scared than I'd ever seen him. More scared than the time Bruno showed up to beat his ass. I don't think either of us actually expected to commune with the dead. I still had my fingers dumbly against the planchette, even though it it couldn't move without another person playing. Or so I thought. The planchette slipped out from under my fingers and started sliding on its own. We both saw it. Tyler would deny it later, but we both fucking saw it moving and spelling out the words. Save me. Tyler became pale. He stood up and slipped his backpack on. This is some fucked up shit. I'm getting the fuck out of here. He didn't wait for me. He was there one second, gone the next, leaving me staring at the planchette still crawling around. I was in shock. I was excited. Daddy? You can bring me back. I'll show you how. Take me home, sunshine. I scooped up the board and planchette. And so began weeks of correspondence through the Ouija board. Dad taught me everything I needed to know, what ritual to use, the materials, the incantations, how to draw the summoning circle. He believed in me. He knew his little ray of sunshine would never let him down. You can buy pig's blood from the deli. No, really. Make sure you bathe the ceremonial dagger in the light of the full moon before the ritual. 
Don't worry, Sunshine. I know you can do this. Good. Now slice your palm. No, not too deep. We only need a few drops to mix with the pig's blood. Let it sit a few days. You're doing great. I love you. All those preparations bring us to tonight. I barricaded my door by sliding my dresser in front of it in case Mom came to check on me. Then Dad walked me through the steps one last time. That's right. Smear the blood in the shape of a circle. Draw a five-pointed star inside. Just like that, yes. Place the five black candles at each point of the star. Good. Now, say the words. Aperi Janum ad infernum. Wind began to blow the curtains in my room. The gusts were coming from the circle. I could hear his voice now, actually hear it. Not just the voice I was imagining in the silence. Good. Now, place your hands on the circle. I did. The room shook violently. My furniture floated and fell. My decorations were knocked to the ground. The summoning circle lit up and the gaps inside darkened as though the ground itself had become a bottomless well. The air became thick with the smell of eggs. Honey, what's going on in there? My mother was calling from beyond the bedroom door. It was almost done. I couldn't let her stop me. Dad was emerging from the summoning circle. I took his hand. The room got cold enough to see my breath. What's going on in there? Mom was pounding on the door, trying everything she could to get it to open. Yes, sunshine. Almost there. His mangled body rose from the ground. There was only one step left. With my free hand, I squeezed his cardigan against my chest. It was my most valued possession, but I'd trade it. I'd trade it for him. The dresser scratched the floor as my bedroom door swung open. Mom was standing in the doorway, her eyes scanning the room, trying but failing to understand what she was seeing. What the hell? I'm bringing Dad back. I'm bringing him back from the dead. I tossed the cardigan into the summoning circle, breaking the bonds holding him in place. Mom looked pale as she stared at him, scampering on the floor towards her. Her eyes were bugging out with an expression I'd never seen before. Her tone was desperate, fearful, remorseful. Honey, your dad's not dead. He left us. He moved to upstate New York. I thought it'd be easier on you if I told you he was dead. What? Whatever that is, that's not your dad. I looked at the thing before me, made up of horrific body parts fused together by what looked like thick, ropey hair. There were more parts than you would need to form a single human being. Three heads. No. No. One head. Three faces. Sharp teeth. Pus-filled gashes. What had I done? It was too late to undo it now. He smirked. Come to Papa, Sunshine. Belladonna and Tea by Marcus Demanda
The knock came exactly at half past five. This time it was my youngest son. I went to the door, rather slowly, I must confess, my walker clicking ahead of me. The knock went unrepeated. My family is very patient with me. Benefits of age, I suppose. And they can bloody well wait. I will not be made to leave my home. I can still take care of myself. I knew it would be my youngest today. He was the only one left. The others had already tried. As fine as it had been to visit with them, they'd all failed one after the other, just as surely as he would. Through the peephole, I confirmed his thin face, his dark eyes, his high cheekbones. All from his father, may the rotten lech burn forever. I put on my best smile and slid the chain lock free. Oh, Seth, how good of you to visit. I wasn't expecting you until Wednesday. He didn't hug me, didn't even offer a kiss. That would not come until six o'clock if the visit took so long. It had been the same with Bethany, Orville and Lynette. I saw no reason why it should be different with Seth. He clomped into my small house, shaking the snow from his boots onto the mat. It's good to see you, Mother. Are you ready? You know you can't stay here anymore. I knew all right. It was my time, at least as far as they were concerned. I needed people around me. I shouldn't be alone. Seth was always such a good boy. Most grown boys are, except when they're not. I wagged a finger at him. Not yet. Have some tea, won't you? If you insist. I clicked and clacked my way back to the kitchen. He followed, matching my pace deliberately. I motioned for him to sit. And how were my grandchildren? Cheap metal chair legs scraped over the lino. I... I wouldn't know, Mother. Pity. I lit a match for the gas stove and put the kettle on. Any father worth his twig and berry should be able to make some accounting of his own children, Seth. It's been a long time, Mother. It's... It's difficult to explain. No, it isn't. I'll see them again when the time is right. Of course you will. I made as though rummaging through the cabinet for tea bags. Truth was, I had a difficult time looking at him. My own son, in his fine overcoat and his silk tie. The black leather gloves he set on the table probably worth twice the cost of the table itself. I'd had a box of Twining's Earl Grey Lavender lined up for more than an hour before his arrival. What do you fancy? I kept my back to him, already predicting his response, and I thought, you don't. You worthless and miserable fuck job. You insufferable panhandler of shit. You turned out no better than your father. Anything, really. It doesn't matter. We should talk. Biscuits first. I set them down in front of him without looking him in the eye. They were chocolate, 
baked only this morning and still soft. They were his favourite, and I put them on the plate he had made for me at camp when he'd been only nine. He didn't comment, but he did sniff them. Go on, then. Don't wait for me. You're as thoughtful as ever, Mother. I set the tea bags in the cups. I set the cups in the saucers. I heard my son take a bite from a biscuit. I poured the hot water into only one cup. I would not need two. You're not my son. Mother? Then he choked. His hand slammed the table, rattling the plate. He heaved in a mighty gasp of air. The inhalation was like the audio photonegative of a scream. Don't you take that long-suffering tone with me. My son died 20 years ago. I know who you are, why you've come, why you've been here four fucking times. And you learn nothing. Are you really this stupid? I heard him lurch forward, face-planting onto the small table, upending it. I waited. Only when the breathing finally petered off to a permanent silence did I turn, pivoting with the walker to find the table overturned, the plate shattered, the biscuits scattered. But my son, the thing that had assumed the likeness of my son, was gone. There is no poison on earth, I think, that could actually have dispatched my visitor so quickly as that. One does not kill death, does one? But one might deny him, or her, as she was when she took a bullet from my husband's old derringer as Bethany, or a knitting needle to the eye as Lynette. As a teenager, I'd learned what it was to be an orphan. But I never knew what true pain was until I'd outlived my own four children. They'd been such disappointments to me in life, but I'd loved them just the same. Missed them just the same. I'm 99 years old. In three days, it'll be my birthday. I'm not done living just yet, and I have enjoyed seeing my family one by one, one final time each. But it took some balls on your part, Death, to visit me as if you were there. My memory isn't what it was, but it seems it's still better than yours. How is it that you're still so surprised, time after time? Is there more than one of you? Are you letting me win? Are you such a good sport? Do you remember my mother? I do. She told me all about you. I've been ready for you for decades. You'll come to me as my long-departed friends next. Whom will you choose? There were so many of them over time. I look forward to seeing them all. And I'm not tired. Not yet. Not by a long shot. The Pinata Sabbatical by E.E. E. King 
It was one of those Mexican villages. You know the kind. A peaceful square, a quiet charm, a graciousness of spirit, and customs so ancient their roots have been long obscured by time. On November 1st, Dia de los Muertos, rows of brightly decorated calaveras grin from colored floral alcoves. Costume throngs fill the parroquia. The cemeteries overflow with flowers. Mariachis play. Families picnic on the petal-strewn graves. Widows serenade their lost lovers. Children leave bottles of vino and mezcal for their abuelitos. It was in just such a town at just such a time that George Walter Smithers, professor of ancient Mayan mythology, arrived for a two-year sabbatical. Here he will finally finish his long-overdue paper on Apwash, the Mayan god of death. Despite his field of study, George is used to death being a somber affair, damp with tears, heavy with quiet dignity. The dancing skeletons and lipstick death's heads unsettle him. In the main square below the rose-pink candy spirals of the church, altars shine with the profusion of marigolds. Snapshots of the dead and better days look out from the monochromatic past, a dull sheen coating their immediacy. In the park, giant 3D pictures mourn that year's tally of the famous. But the famous dead are just as gone as the unknown. For a moment, all are equally immortal. Immortality is, after all, a human concept. Even the world has its days numbered. But a sugared skull is still a skull. Blindfolded children hitting piñatas with just a bit too much intention make George shudder. And when the ceramic body shatters into a million pieces on the floor, he starts and looks away, afraid he'll see a profusion of organs littering the cobblestones. By the time he looks back, the streets are empty, the candy already scraped clean by laughing, screaming children. The place was always unexpected. Behind every doorway lurk gardens of floral splendor. Behind every candy, skulls smile. Even the piñatas, which, if George had thought about it, are supposed to be a concoction of paper and glue, turn out to have brittle clay skeletons that smash with bone-splintering reality. A rocket streams through the air, exploding in a flash. Gray-blue smoke snakes into the plaza, flavoring the air with the bittersweet scent of gunpowder. It is so much more different than studying from afar. More vivid, more visceral, more jolting. George turns into an open cafe. It's only noon but already groups of chattering gringos are sipping cloudy margaritas and amber tequilas. An elderly woman asks him if he's going to the party at La Muñeca. There are a lot of elderly women here. The women have the faded glory of overblown old fashion, like roses, a flower that emits a fragrance so full of longing 
Hummingbirds often stopped in midair and tumbled earthward, swooning with desire. There were men, too, moving stiffly, with the flatness of young men ill at ease in their old bodies. It was as if they had awoken transformed, unsure how to navigate, hair unexpectedly bleached, faces lined and shoulders stooped. The women are more plentiful. Women, it's clear, lived longer, more aromatic lives. George is unnerved. He's from the cooler, less ebullient climes of New England, unused to having strangers ask him about parties before even an introduction. But somehow, after two margaritas have been pressed into his unresisting hands and poured sweet and cold into his empty belly, he gets caught in a throng of people and ends up at La Muñeca. It's the kind of party that George has supposed only happened in Fitzgerald novels. Confetti rains down on the masked, costumed throng. Dry ice rises unexpectedly from the dance floor. Alcohol flows more freely than rain. Even the bathroom is decorated with red-stained handprints and dancing skeletons. George lurks on the sidelines, nursing a soda water. Somehow, he gets drunk anyway. Stumbling home late at night, stepping over the small, still bodies of the hummingbirds, he is remorseful. He is there to work not party. He will never finish his paper at this rate. George moves into a white adobe hacienda above town. It has a red tile roof and a cobbled courtyard. He can still see fireworks and hear explosions, but the fragrance of gunpowder never drifts up this far. George has his groceries delivered to the house. He only visits the town on dark nights. It's peaceful then. He enjoys strolling the empty gaslit streets that glow a soft yellow. He smiles when an owl calls. An owl is all Pwash's familiar. The year passes quickly, but without satisfaction. He'd hoped that Mexico would provide a revelation. He'd imagined it would offer the impetus to finish his long-expected paper. But the warm days make him sleepy, and the crowing of roosters in the night give him nightmares. He knows Alpoche is a god who demands sacrifice. George is willing. He's already sacrificed his measured life, his sleep, and left his cat in the care of strangers. What more is expected? Only the occasional owl winging silently overhead gives him any comfort. One night, when he descends into town, the streets are crowded. An elderly woman looks up at him, asking if he's heard the news. George wonders if it's the same woman who'd accosted him last year. Four children, she tells him, missing, no sign of them at all. The woman seems to enjoy sharing the news with the greed George finds disturbing. He retreats to the hill to work. That year, the parents make altars for the absent. The faces of nine-year-old Pedro, eight-year-old Maria, seven-year-old Jorge, 
and six-year-old Lupe smile out from halos of golden marigolds. George makes four piñatas in memory of the lost. Que generoso, the people murmur. He made them with his own hands, an act of love, an act of devotion. And they were right. For weeks, George had been drying the tiny bones before grinding them into paste, filling their guts with candy and clothing their bones in paper. After the smashing of the last piñata, after the last remnant of candy is gone, he returns to the hilltop and begins writing as though inspired. Apwash has accepted his offering. That Nightmare from My Childhood by John Rowland. The sun goes down, and right after nightfall, I hear it. Like an old music box that's winding down. I look down from my bedroom window and see the ice cream truck drift onto my street. I peer into the yellow light inside it, looking for the driver, but... The angle from my window is bad and I can't see him. The truck stops at the curb in front of my house and I hear a rusty metal door slide open. My stomach twisting with fear, I duck down so he won't see me staring. Over the music, I hear him jingling strange, tinny bells to let everyone know he's there. The noise reminds me of a toy jester I'd owned a few years before. You know, the kind with bells just like that on its head and feet, though it didn't seem right to call it a toy when it was almost as big as I was. It had been a gift, but I'd secretly thrown it in the trash one night because I didn't like how its eyes were made and because there was something not right about how it grinned at me. In my imagination, it had become a hungry grin. I hear a few children down in the street laughing as they flock to the truck, but the bells have stirred images in my mind and I don't, I I don't want to look out again until he moves further down the street. Finally, the sounds recede and I peek my head up to look. The truck is idling at the end of the block now, far enough away that my stomach starts to relax again. (sighs) The children must have all gone back to their houses, but I wonder how they could have disappeared so quickly. Anxious to get under the protective cover of my blankets, I climb quickly into bed. I can still hear the bells tinkling out there. Only, they don't seem to be coming from near the truck anymore. It's, it's like they're moving all over the street and even across the rooftops. For one horrible moment, it sounds like they're right outside my window on the narrow ledge below it, and I almost jump out of bed and run for the door. But then they stop, and the next time I hear them, they're distant again. 
there is a softer, hypnotic quality to them now, and sleep creeps over me before I can fight it. When I wake, it is to the warped music box sound, impossibly close now. My room is smothered in darkness, and the air is so cold that it hurts to breathe. I sit up in bed and hit my head on the ceiling, only it's not the ceiling, and I'm not in my bed. My hands grope along the floor, the shaved ice that surrounds me numbing my fingers. I try to scream, but it's like the air has frozen in my lungs and no sound will come out. I remember the pen light that I always keep in my pajama pocket, and I flick it on. Bells jingle as the jester-like thing that's feeding on my frozen legs leaps up to snatch my light. Familiar eyes glistening before the icebox blackens again. The nightmare melody curls around me like an embrace, and I realize what the music is for. To drown out the chewing sounds. Please send help by Emmanuel A. 911, what's the emergency? Yeah, yes, hello? Please send help. There's something in the house, and I think it hurt my mom. Okay. Can you tell me your name and address? My name is Iona. Um, my last name is Tiller. I live at 60 Goldale Boulevard. Okay, Iona. Did you see the intruder's face? No, I ran back to my room when I saw my mom on the floor, and I heard footsteps. I'm sorry, I, I don't know what else to do. It's okay, Iona. It was very smart and mature of you to call 911. Just stay on the line with me, okay? Stay hidden where you are. Okay. I won't move. Now, Iona... I need you to be a big boy and answer some very important questions. Can you do that for me? Okay, I'll try. What is today's date? It's, uh, March 28th, 2019. Very good. Now, what is the exact time? It says 1.38 p.m., just after lunchtime. I see. John, flag this call and listen in. I think we got another one. Oh, God. Okay. I don't want to die. I don't want to lose my mom. Please send help. Iona, there's a little problem. Based on your location, it should be 3.42 a.m., the middle of the night. Please send help. I'm sorry, Iona, but I won't be able to dispatch help to your location. Please send help. John, did you hear all that? Yep. Great. Now they're mimicking children. 
Ugh. Too many good people in the emergency services have gone missing after dispatch because of these copycats again lately. What's changed? I've been off work for a while, so I missed the new developments. Didn't we suss out how to ID them? That's why I asked those questions. They've just recently learned how to accurately tell the date. I can only hope they don't start getting the time right, too. People Watching by J.D. Stone I am in love with the bittersweet, silent contemplation that comes with people watching. I detach from my own hellish and lonely days as I gaze through my small, dirty window, cherishing even the most simple experiences of others. It might be an elderly woman sharing a snack with her tired husband and exchanging an almost tearful glance of unending love. Or an exhausted young mother gently rocking her newborn baby to sleep while timidly wiping the sweat from her brow. A gang of teenagers out of school, leaning tense against a wall, wondering if they're going to be found. Or an irate businesswoman fidgeting and fixing her suit while tirelessly trying to make calls. I imagine their pasts and wonder at their futures, as I see such a beautiful palette of interactions between fellow people. Though, as I see lips dance in idle chatter, or eyes widen at an imagined rumor, how I crave to be privy to such conversations, how I wish to indulge in such gab or gossip, how my surrounding quiet isolates me. Bittersweet my silent watching truly is, because had I not decided to install the soundproofing down there, then the cops surely would have heard their screams by now. I Never Sleep by Phil Sufton I always told Sarah and our children that I was only afraid of death. Nothing else frightened me. Not even heights or spiders. Only the inevitability of one day facing my own mortality. I don't fear it anymore. No, I'm well commit. I beg for it in these everlasting, unending moments. There is no rest for me, as I can't sleep. I'm forced to stay awake and listen from my resting place, accompanied in this void by the constant beating of my heart. It is a curse, and I don't know what I did to deserve such a fate. My family can't hear me, because they believe that I'm already dead. I hear them when they visit me, though. They treat my resting place as a confessional, sharing their most intimate thoughts and beliefs, as though they are speaking to no one at all. But no, I hear them. I have no choice. 
And as a small gift that, over these long years, these visits have become so less frequent. Sarah was the first to stop visiting. She begged for forgiveness and understanding as she had finally relented to our children's wishes and moved on from our union. Their stepfather was kind to them, Sarah told me, and they were both on the path to truly seeing him as a father. I'm sure that you would want me to move forward. He keeps me safe. He makes me happy. Daggers to my still beating heart. I don't think I've wished for death more than I did that day. If only to end my constant suffering. Michael was the second to stop visiting. He admitted to resenting me, to hating me for not being there to teach him how to be a man. He blamed me for his own immaturity. It pained my heart when Renee stopped by recently. To hear from my resting place that my daughter walked down the aisle with her stepfather instead of me. That she was expecting her first child in the coming months. She had the audacity to pray that I would be there to watch over my granddaughter, guiding her as she enters the world I am so desperate to leave. I spit on her prayers. Renee believed in her more candid moments of confession that she was the only one to care for me after all these years. She saw her more frequent visits to my resting place as a badge of honor. Something to brag to her friends about because it made her a good person. If she wished to honor her father's memory, she would have pulled the plug years ago. But of course, she insists that I wouldn't want that. Which, I suppose, is my own fault. <laughs> I heard her speak to the nurses. He was only ever afraid of one thing. I know he'll never wake up, but this is what my father wants. The Sheet by Manon Lysette. The sun sets, the wind howls, the creek trickles, and I hear a voice. Uh, uh, hello? I choose to answer, but only because the stars aren't out yet. I don't have to go home yet. Uh, uh, hi? It's quiet. So quiet, in fact, that I question whether sound even exists at all. Whether I invented a fifth sense. And then the voice comes again. Louder this time, but still plagued by a shy undertone. Uh, hello? I look up, and I see a figure hovering ten feet above the ground. It looks like silk. It waves in the breeze. It's not a sheet though it looks like one. 
It blankets a human form with impossible accuracy, but I can't see anything inside. The flapping of its body reminds me of my sister running through the fresh linens on the clothesline. It's okay. I won't hurt you. I reach a hand to it, but as the stars start to blink into existence, I become aware of a large cluster missing beyond the sheet. There's darkness as tall and wide as a house, but rounder. The sheet flutters inward, pulled towards something in the blackness. Hello? The voice escapes a concealed mouth behind the silky form, discernible only by the rows upon rows of small, jagged teeth. Its breath pushes the empty sheet toward me. There's no time to escape the jowls of the sky-black creature, which had so easily lured me in, like an anglerfish. Suddenly Shocking was produced by Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett for the No Sleep Podcast. Featuring vocal performances from myself, Jesse Cornett, alongside Jessica McAvoy, Matthew Bradford, Mary Murphy, Aaron Lillis, Dan Zampula, Kristen Dermacurio, Mike Delgadio, Nicole Goodnight, Graham Roat, Atticus Jackson, Peter Lewis, Jeff Clement, Armin Taylor, Nicole Doolin, Addison Peacock, David Alt, Erica Sanderson, Andy Cresswell, Eden, Ellie Hirschman, Alexis Bristow, Kyle Akers, and David Cummings. Music by Brandon Boone. Visit the nosleeppodcast.com to learn more about our show and our season pass memberships. Thank you for listening to Suddenly Shocking, Volume 11. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplications or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.